0: of you know, working through the Gospel of John, and we land in one of the more famous chapters of Scripture. Most people know about John chapter 3. Most people know John three sixteen. We see that broadcast, and, and it is, um, without a doubt, I was reading J.C. Ryle, an, uh, a writer, a commentator from a bygone era, and, and he talked about how important this chapter is. It doesn't reduce the significance of any portion of Scripture, but here we land in a chapter where we see Christ explaining redemption. This is this is the story from his his own lips, so to speak, uh, as he's talking with one person at night and and the title of this is the necessity of the new birth as we move through the rest of the chapter. Uh, we'll be looking at how one is saved, and it's, it's clearly laid out, but here is the idea that we need new birth, and, and I was thinking of how to introduce this and, and how to connect us to Nicodemus's struggle, because we are, and I want us to see this as humans, we are Nicodemus. We are wrestling. Uh, we are struggling, and so I was looking at this, and I was trying to think of something to explain it, and, and the idea that came to mind was the idea of of being worthy. Uh, we all like to think that we bring something to the table, that we bring value in some form or fashion to whatever we're involved in doing, which in and of itself is not a, a horrible thing. But as humans, we crave that worth and fight so that it can be seen and recognized. On the sports field, we need to either be seen as an integral part of the defense or offense, or we need to be the heart of the team on our jobs. We want to be worth our pay. We want to be seen as bringing creativity and inspiration uh, to the design team. We want to be known as the problem solver. Amongst our friends, we are the funny one, the helpful one, the giver, uh, maybe even the taker, because every giver needs a taker is what I say. And so in any group of my friends, I'm the taker. Um, Regardless, though, of the circle, we feel the need to be intrinsically self-worthy. That we bring to the equation something of value. But that perspective, that need, can often taint our connection to the Savior. It can taint how we view eternal life. It can cripple us from ever seeing or entering into God's kingdom of truly being part of his ultimate reign. And it is that exact issue that Nicodemus highlights for us and a crucial reality to be dealt with as we engage in eternal questions. You might say off the onset, well, Kenny, I'm a believer. I don't, I don't struggle with this. And I'm going to throw out at the end of the sermon that maybe you are a believer, but you may be living a life that now lives that idea of self-worth. And I'll throw this out as well. As you encounter the world around you, everyone has this battle within themselves. The idea that they deserve or they have earned or they're good enough or everything is okay, and so we're going to dive into this because this becomes what we all struggle with. And when I say all, I say the church, but also going beyond that, all of humanity will wrestle with. Now it's important to keep everything in context. It's it's easy when we read through Scripture uh, to see a chapter break and suddenly say, "Well, new scene, new scenario." And I want us to be aware of our surroundings and circumstances as we enter into the conversation with Nicodemus, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. This is at the beginning of his ministry. This is at the onset. So we have walked through a wedding feast. We have seen him engage and talk with John the Baptist. But here he is at his first Passover. He'll walk through three, possibly four, Passovers in his ministry. This is the first one. And he starts this off by cleaning up worship. He has run the greedy bazaar of Annas, as it was known, out of the court of Gentiles. He'll do it again at the end of his ministry. The people don't get the message. People want to be commercialized. They want to be shallow. And then after being questioned and making references to his resurrection, a reference that no one grasped at the time, he remained in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you have the Passover, and then you have a week of, of celebrating. And he was there in Jerusalem for that feast. And as we read in John 2, 23 through 25, he was doing many signs and that people were drawn to him, but they were drawn to him in a superficial way. It notes there, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And and what that is saying to us is he's doing miracles. And again, John tells us in John 20 that he is not going to record every miracle. He recorded the signs to prove the point that he was trying to make. He was proving Christ to Jews at the time, but also the audience, the whole world. And so he's writing here, and, and Jesus is doing these other signs. And it says there people in a very shallow way were coming to him. They were drawn to him. And it's this context. So right two ends, and, and we have signs being done, which Nicodemus is going to reference in this context, in these superficial times. And I would throw out that we live in very superficial times that we live in a time when people engage with truth in a very shallow way. They don't dive deep. They're not, they're not trying to understand who they are to the deepest perspective. They're looking for something that will make them feel better, something that will condone their life. And, and so when you compare the times you see it in these shallow times, Nicodemus comes to Jesus making what I call a general connection. Look at verse 1 of 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And we start by getting a picture now of the person coming to Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. We know that he's a Pharisee. And understand the Pharisees, they were a group that were known as being separated, they are the zealots for keeping the law. There are other groups at this time. The Sadducees are going around. There's actually a whole group of zealots that are rising up at this time. But unlike the Sadducees, which were the high priests and the Levites around the temple, and they were often very wealthy, the Pharisees came from the middle class. Most Pharisees had a trade. Paul was a tent maker and he was a Pharisee. And though they're small in numbers, they carried significant influence with the population. And by that, I mean this, the Sadducees were the high priests, but the person who set the tone of the nation, who described what they wanted to attain to or how they would see it was the Pharisees. Uh, they had come up during the intertestamental period. So between the Old and the New Testament, when anti Epiphanes was trying to Hellenize Jewish culture, they came up to resist that and to adhere to the law. But sadly, during this time, they had added a lot of oral law that competed with God's law. If you move in history by the second century A.D., uh, the Sadducees are no more, the Zealots are gone, and the Pharisees become the defining characteristic of Judaism. So if you're a Pharisee, you teach and people assume that is Judaism. It's not a sect of Judaism. It's not a look at Judaism. It's no longer perspective. By the second century, it is Judaism. Now, Nicodemus belongs to this group of Pharisees, but he also belongs to the Sanhedrin, and that is the ruling body of Jews that included the priests, the Levites, and the Pharisees. And as we mentioned a couple weeks ago in chapter one, that group of people sent a contingency to question John the Baptist. And as we know, a small portion of them would have been Pharisees, and they are the most driving to the law group. And so here is a man that is a Pharisee, with a lot of influence amongst the common population. He is also a Pharisee that sits on the ruling board of Israel, 72 men that were given a lot of power by the Roman government. The only thing they couldn't do was put someone to death. But in all matters of religion and function in their society, these are the ones that rule. Beyond that, as we've seen in the middle of the discourse, he is identified by Jesus as a master of Israel, which also can be translated uh, the teacher of Israel. And so if you look at different translations, as you you dive into the Greek word, there is an article there that says he's not just a teacher or a master, but he was the teacher, or in some ways it's saying the master. In other words, at a minimum, here is a distinguished teacher, if not one of the most distinguished teachers of the law. And so he comes by night. Now, everyone says he comes by night because he's afraid, he's scared, he's sneaky. Uh, the reality is we, we don't actually know that. It, it could be that he had some fear, uh, but just as likely he came by night because he wanted an uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. Uh, the teachers of that time were known to talk long into the night. And so it'd be very classic for two people of their statue or their level Uh, to come together at night to talk uninterrupted, unencumbered by the crowds. And so all of that to say, this important professor of the law comes and addresses Jesus. And in all reality, he comes and addresses Jesus respectfully. He's the master of Israel. And yet he goes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, which he's stating a logical conclusion. He knows this. Someone doing these miracles must be from God. He made that statement, which is a a move for him. I want us to see Nicodemus in the correct light. Uh, At the end of this conversation, he's not a believer. He's still a skeptic. He's still not ridiculing, but incredulous about what Christ is saying. But I do want us to see the difference between him and the rest of the Pharisees. As you read through John, the rest of the Pharisees are going to tell Jesus he has a demon. Uh, They're going to mock his birth. Uh, That is not what we see from Nicodemus. He says to him, you're a teacher, you have to be from God, but he misses the eternal conclusion that the person doing these miracles, teaching gospel truth, is God, that it is the long-awaited Messiah that he should not have missed. Yet he comes at night not just to pay his respects, and though the the approach he has is very generalized, And fill with chit-chat, that's exactly what verse 1 and 2 is. Oh, you're a rabbi, you do great miracles, you're wonderful. Here am I, a man of position, offering to you equal status to me. But even tucked within there, he came to, to, to Christ respectfully, but also inquisitively. He's attempting to reconcile what is logical. What is logical to Nicodemus is that someone doing these miracles must be from God. He must be working with God's power. But what he cannot quite grasp and what he cannot accept is the implication of Jesus' teaching. So Nicodemus has come to Christ with a problem. He's too proud to state that problem. But he comes to Christ and says, I know that you have to be from God. You have to be working under God's power. But what he cannot reconcile and cannot accept is what Jesus is teaching him. And I put as a note here, there's something both beautiful and sad in his approach. He is seeking Jesus, seeking to understand, coming to the right person, making the right effort, yet his pride, his own ministry, his knowledge, his self-worth inhibits a full and true belief and inquiry. He cannot stoop to come on his knees. He cannot come submitting to the creator, and so he attempts this general connection. And I put here, as we look at his connection, sadly, this is the type of connection too many today attempt to make with Christ, to hold on to who they are, to hold on to their influence and status, to hold tightly, so tightly that they cannot see that it carries no eternal weight. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, will never leave the eternal sitting in the general category. So without spending time in cultural pleasantries and flatteries, he doesn't respond to Nicodemus with, oh man, but I've heard you're a great teacher. It's so wonderful to talk to you tonight. I'm glad you came tonight to me, and we, the elite educated ones, can dialogue. He bypasses... Every one of those pleasantries, all those flatteries. And, and in that culture, you were supposed to return flattery with flattery. You're supposed to say, you're amazing. And they say, and you're amazing. And you spend a good bit of time talking about how amazing each of you are. Uh, Christ bypasses that. This general entry point that Nicodemus brings, and he moves quickly to a personal application. I want us to look at verses 3 uh, through eight. And, and notice in the conversation, and all through John, whenever you, you see the words verily, verily, or truly, truly, which are actually a translation of the word amen, amen, it is Christ emphasizing. And I'll mention this a little later on. He's highlighting something. He's, he's trying to make a point. It is the equivalent of saying, listen up. I'm telling you something important. Pay attention. It is to, to catch the ear of the listener. <laughs> and so Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice what a drastic move that is. Nicodemus walks up and says, you must be from God because you do amazing miracles. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And we're staring at this and he says, pay attention, you need to be born again. And he goes on, Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? (laughs) And scripture always tells us the information we need. Nicodemus is not a young man. Nicodemus is an old man. He's telling us that he is an older man coming here. (coughs) He says, "'Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born?' "'Jesus answered, "'Verily, verily, pay attention. "'I say unto thee, "'except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, "'he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. "'And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, "'and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit.'" (coughs) Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and now hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And actually, tucked right there is more theology than we'll probably be able to unpack in one sitting. But it's also a, a great warning to uh, sometimes people who... Bury themselves in theology and expect to explain everything that God does in a human's logic because Christ, right there, tells Nicodemus, one of the more intelligent people in the world at that time, that there's some things you're not going to ever understand about God and the Holy Spirit and how He works, but you are going to see the result thereof. But I digress a little bit. But we go here with what started out in theory from Nicodemus. Hey, you must be from God because you do miracles. And what happens is it shifts quickly from theory to what was needed for Nicodemus. He wants to talk about the issue at hand. And Christ says, let's talk about your issue. Let's talk about who you are. Let's talk about what you need. It got personal quickly. He was approaching Jesus Christ as an equal. He is being very respectful, but I want to see the other side of respect when we walk to Christ and we say to him, hey, I'll give you as much status as I have, because that's what he did. He walked to the Savior of the world and says, hey, we're on equal footing. And he found out quickly that was not the case. And so Jesus, God the Messiah, most definitely not equal with Nicodemus because he's far above him, gives the answer to the question Nicodemus failed to ask. Jesus exposed, exposed Nicodemus's personal need for regeneration. This is the heart of this conversation. Nicodemus wants to understand what's going on and explain these miracles and, and get, a, get a grip of who Jesus is and what it means by what he's teaching. And Jesus says, you need a new birth. You can't get away from this. You must be reborn Everyone, including the elite Nicodemus, must have a new birth. They must be born again, and this floors Nicodemus. Just to give an illustration, basically, Jesus gave a requirement that resembled what would happen with a pagan convert to Judaism. A pagan would get converted to Judaism, and their whole implication that they would be taught is this idea, you're going to set aside everything you've ever done, because none of it has any value. All you thought you were before is, is, is thrown in the garbage bin to pursue a new life and faith in Judaism. But Nicodemus is not a pagan. He's not even an uneducated Israelite. And indeed, is not even just an educated one. Here is an elite <coughs> teacher of Israel, advanced in years, as we looked about, when he says, how can a man be born when he's old? And he is blown away by what Jesus has boldly stated. And from that position, he asks incredulously almost disrespectfully, almost in sarcasm, can that old man reenter his mother's womb? And understand the implication. He's old. His mom's not even alive anymore. He's asking a question that he obviously knows is not the real question. A lot of people, and I've read some commentators say, well, Nicodemus, he was kind of dense to ask that question. He is the master of Israel, the teacher. He's not dense at all, He's too intelligent to think that Jesus was actually suggesting this. He says this because he cannot and would not process what was being said. Jesus was telling him, the elite Jew, that he was not redeemed. He was not okay. His religious works and merits would not amount to anything eternal. Which is his dilemma to begin with. I know you're from God. I think I serve God but you're telling me I've got a huge problem. They had an issue with what Christ was teaching. Jesus called Nicodemus to abandon what he had spent his life gaining and to grasp what Hendrickson notes is this, that spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. See, Nicodemus is struggling with something that too many of us struggle with, too many people in the world struggle with. I'm good enough of my own merits, I deserve eternity. Or you might say, well, there's a lot in the world that they negate eternity. Well, that's just a way of making themselves worthy of being their own God. The question that is driven into, and in whatever way it, it comes at us, is this idea of self-worth, of self-existence, of being our own redeemer, or being our own God. And so Nicodemus somewhat negatively asked that ridiculous question, to which Jesus responds with the perfect explanation. Jesus begins that explanation as he began the requirement of a new birth. As I mentioned, verily, verily, or truly, truly, those words that emphasize that what follows is emphatically true. And I want you to realize that the teacher of Israel just walked up to the teacher, the rabbi, to Jesus Christ the Messiah. And can you imagine in his classroom, he's had to have Jesus say to him, wake up. Pay attention in every other sentence that he's speaking to Nicodemus. And there's a reason for that. He's not listening. He's missing it. And Jesus says that to us as well to wake us up to the conversation. And so Jesus explains by saying, well, you have to be born of water and of the spirit. The new birth consists of these two things. <clears throat> now, if you want to dive in and read forever, you can read about all the different opinions that come with the water and the Spirit. Some people view the water as natural birth, and the Spirit as spiritual birth. Some see the reference to water as speaking of Christian baptism. Some people see the speaking of water to a reference to John's baptism. But none of these ideas account for what has been said. Jesus is not contrasting these two things. He's not saying you need to be born of the Spirit and not water, or you need Spirit in addition to water. That an All honesty in Greek, there is no confusion at all because it makes it very crystal clear that you need to have both of these things. It's also very clear in Greek that he's not referring to two different births. He's not saying as many people think, well, he's speaking of you need to be born physically and then you gotta be reborn spiritually. But in all fairness to the Greek grammar, it's not two things. It's one thing that has to have these two components. On top of all of that, Jesus is not talking to Nicodemus with new teaching. He is fully expecting Nicodemus to understand this. And we'll talk about the reprimand at the end when he says, how can these things be? And you think, oh, that's just a question of, I just don't understand. And Jesus says, you're the master and you don't know. There's no Uh, pulling back from what was a very stern rebuke to him. And and that helps us grasp a little bit of what's being said here when Jesus says, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. See, Jesus is speaking of an Old Testament concept that Nicodemus should have known, that every Israelite should have known, that anyone who read scriptures should have known. Uh, But layer that with Nicodemus's extensive study and teaching on it and Jesus is basically telling Nicodemus that the Old Testament spoke of regeneration and that Israel, and very specifically the master of Israel, Nicodemus, has missed it, and they shouldn't have. You see, the water and spirit speak, as MacArthur notes, of spiritual renewal and cleansing. Or if you want to flip it around, it's cleansing with water and spiritual renewal with the spirit. This is pictured perfectly in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. This is speaking of Israel's restoration to the Lord by the new covenant. I'll mention that the next chapter or two in Ezekiel goes into that valley of dry bones that needs spirit and needs life, and that all connects together. But here God says this um, to Israel, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? So if you get the idea of what they should have, water represents cleansing. It goes on, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And the point that that Jesus is making, the clear connect that's there, and Nicodemus would not have missed this. He knows the law, he knows Scripture, that the Old Testament was clear, that spiritual cleansing and spiritual renewal, regeneration, new birth, were essential to eternal life to entrance into the kingdom of God to being saved. And I want you to understand what Nicodemus is running against because he's not going to argue that with Jesus for pagans and for Gentiles. His problem is is that he can't imagine that God would ask him to do that. He can't see how he needs new birth. Others need new birth, but not certainly not him. And so Christ brings a reference to spiritual cleansing and to rebirth right there, tucked together in in a way that he would not have missed it. And who is God talking to? Well, he's talking to Israel in these passages. And so Christ is confronting in Nicodemus his inability, his unwillingness to accept the fact that he doesn't bring anything to the table. That his genetic makeup, the fact that he is from God's people, the fact that he's a Jew, does not make him any less unsaved than somebody else. See, Israel, and, and let's be honest, the whole world was numb to the reality. Why? Because of their self-righteousness. And I'm going to use another word, because of their self-worthiness. Everyone perceives themselves as worthy, as, as not Really needing God. They're blind to obvious need. And then to correct any earthliness that could be attached to rebirth, what did Nicodemus say? What, am I going to be reborn again from my mother's womb? Somewhat sarcastically, somewhat incredulously, he's asking. Jesus goes on to explain that flesh produces flesh and spirit produces spirit. What that means is that we as humans aren't going to bring about rebirth spiritually, even if we were reborn physically. We're not the cause, nor could we ever be, of spiritual rebirth. MacArthur writes this, even if a physical rebirth were possible, this is the implication of flesh begets flesh, it would produce only flesh. Thus, only the spirit can produce the spiritual birth required for entrance into God's kingdom. I know when I'm saying this, that as believers we sit here and we know this. We know salvation is of the Lord. We recognize it, but what I hope will confront our hearts as we walk through the rest of this and as we walk through chapter 3 is not to see chapter 3 and say, man, the world needs to hear that. They need to grasp that. I hope it drives in us as believers to return to where we understand that we don't bring to the table anything, but that God brought it all. And if you want to understand what spiritual fruit that is, that's meekness. If you go back to what Christ said, the meek shall inherit the earth. They're part of the kingdom of God. Meekness is understanding that you don't bring something to the table when it comes to God. What is Moses known for? He was the meekest man on earth. And we immediately see this timid personality walking around, Maybe talking, maybe not. But if you read the Pentateuch, you realize that there's nothing timid about him as he leads Israel, yet he's the, the meekest man on earth. What did that mean? He understood that God did it all. That he was everything. Now this all aligns, and I want us to see this with the whole concept of birth. You are not and we're not in control of your physical birth. We do not bring it about on ourselves. And so neither are we in control of our spiritual birth. And even though Nicodemus should have known that from Old Testament Scripture, Jesus divinely recognized the need for this explanation of the Spirit's work. And I want to say this, it's something we all need as humans. We desperately still need today. And so he points to nature to now help us grapple with the reality that we do not control the Spirit. And I want us to understand that as believers, you don't control the Holy Spirit. And Christ says that now we know the Holy Spirit is God. And so by implication, you understand if you don't control the Spirit, you also don't control God, nor can you completely grasp how he works. But we are able and should see the transformative result of his work. And so what does Jesus say? He says the wind blows where it wants to or wishes And you hear it. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I want you to understand the implication of that illustration because that's what this is. This is an illustration. This is to help Nicodemus grapple with something. And this is this he's not in control. He walked to Jesus and said, Hey, equal. Let's talk about this thing you're teaching about. And Jesus says, you need to be born again, which confronts in him this idea of I'm as bad as a pagan. I have to come to Christ in this way. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And so Jesus then tells him, yeah, you have to be born again. You have to be born of the, the water and of the spirit, which takes him right back to Ezekiel. And, and what he's showing him is, is this need that he has. See, Nicodemus is not a man that needs anything from anybody. He is the man with the answers. He's the one who teaches. He's the one who served God. He's the one who's kept the law. He's kept his own law. He's kept all the traditions. He is the elite of the elites. Isn't God lucky to have him in his kingdom? And Jesus just told him, you're not in the kingdom. And he is grappling with this. And so Jesus shares the idea that you as a human aren't able to produce spiritual life within yourself. The Spirit does it. And that, that goes against everything we hold dear. Because I like to be in control. I don't know about you. And I, some people say, oh, I'm not, a control. I'm not a control freak. I don't need to be in control. No, to a certain level, you might not be as crazy as the rest of us, but you still need to be in control. I know that. At some point, you need to be in control. And we grapple with this. And so then Jesus explains to us in a way that we can understand it. And that's where the wind comes in. Because though we are able to predict the wind a little more today then when these words were penned, I would venture forth that we're still not any better with predicting the weather than they were back then. Because these snowstorms sure surprised everyone from, from Tennessee all the way up. You know, All I heard was, oh, I can't believe it snowed this much. I'm like, well, it did. Good job on that, good job computers. But either way, we might know a little bit more that the wind is still not something we control. We don't exactly know when it starts and we don't exactly know where it ends. And we definitely can't manipulate the wind. We don't tell the wind to blow. Nobody, no scientific model, no action can tell the wind that it blows here to there or in this direction or it needs to move the leaves at this volume or at that volume. We don't control the wind. And that is obvious, right? If you've ever, I know for me, every time I go to spray weed killer and I live on a hill, And everyone, oh, the breeze is wonderful. You know when the breeze is not wonderful? When you want to spray Roundup. And as long as the wind's blowing on my neighbor's property, everything's fine. I just spray it well and see what happens. But when it's going back in my face is when it bothers me. And so when I think about the wind, when that illustration comes up, I think about spraying Roundup. Because when I go to spray Roundup, I don't want a breeze. And sure enough, I mix Roundup, and the breeze kicks up. And I think about making my kids spray the Roundup, like, they're not going to even think about it at all. And then there will be no mowing this season, but it'll be a lot of dirt. But I don't control it. It's not at my dictate. I don't have anything to say over it. And that's what Jesus connects for us. And so he says, "This, understand this with the Spirit. What does accomplish the transformed lives of those born of the Spirit is obvious. If you're saved, you should know it. And everyone else should. Because when the wind blows and moves all the leaves away... We're aware of it. And I want us to understand what Jesus is dealing with with Nicodemus. He's dealing with someone who's come to him and said, I don't need you. I don't like that you're teaching this. I know you're from God, but I don't like what you're saying. And I am in control. And Jesus just said to him, you're not in control. You cannot work your own salvation. And as believers, we know that. There's nothing I can do to earn Christ. He did the work, right? He died on the cross. He's accomplishing this. And here is Nicodemus, and he's saying, yeah, but I've got to do something. Or more importantly, I've done something. And again, I go all the way back to the beginning. He can't walk to Christ on his knees. Or to put it in maybe vernacular, we understand. He won't come to the cross because he doesn't need it. He doesn't need salvation. And so Jesus is telling him, you're grappling with this idea of control. I want you to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing. The work of the wind, though we can't control it, is obvious. The work of regeneration in the human heart can neither be controlled or exactly predicted. How many times have you prayed for someone to be saved and you think, this is not possible? This is not feasible. There's no way this could happen. And that person is saved and we say, And we rejoice as believers in this, right? But we have to recognize that we didn't control it. I remember a friend of mine, many of you know him, James Burnett. We prayed for years for his dad. And he shared about his dad. And and I want to share this briefly just so we understand that we may not know how he works, but we can see the effect of, of his working. So James, he shared, when I first met James, one of the first things he talks about, his mom is saved, uh, his dad, and his dad was, was a tough guy. I mean, James went to a Christian college, and his dad did not pay for it and would not help with it, was disappointed in James's choice uh, of path of life. And so years we're doing this is a, about two years ago, James shared, might have been a year ago, it's hard to know when time passes as you get older, but he came and says, hey, Kenny, you won't believe this, my dad got saved. I said, what, what, what changed? He says, I'd given up. I mean, you're still there witnessing. You're still there trying to help. My dad has Alzheimer's. He says it's the onset of forgetting everything and not even recognizing there's been spurts where he's just confused, never been confused before. They've had to pick him up at the whatever Rotary Club, wherever they go play bingo at because he forgets something or something else. And his mom calls him and says, you got to come here. Your dad's asking questions. And sure enough, his dad gets saved. Says to James immediately after, I can't believe I've resisted and rejected and fought all these years, and I think of this passage the wind blows where it wills, and we don't know, but we do see the effect of it. As humans, we cannot fathom all the depths of God nor his working, but we are given the insight to see the result of his work, results that are clear to us personally and individually. Those words are a bit of caution to us as well. I mentioned this as a side note, and I say a side note's not even in my notes, so this is just a a brand new side note comes in. Um, But as we read that, and it tells us that we won't quite get our mind around it, I'm always skeptical. Even guys I love and read, sometimes they are just too logical. They've got it all worked out, and every time someone has it perfectly clear in a box, I think, Yeah, but Jesus said it blows in the wind and we're not going to really know everything that's there. And I always have a, a bit of caution, a bit of discernment that comes in. Remember what Christ said to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was an educational elite and recognized that he's in control and we're not. So all that to say, the calling to be born again rings true today as it did when Nicodemus talked with Jesus. The need for regeneration has not changed And the need for regeneration was for every human that has ever or ever will be on this earth. No one is exempt from the need for regeneration. We struggle with the concept. We wrestle because we want it to be something we earn. We all want to take the achievement test. As much as you may hate tests, we all want to have our hand on it. We may ask God, don't ask for too much from me, But we want God to ask something from us because we want to deserve it. And no matter how many people and how many generations of people wrestle with that, it doesn't change the reality of needing to be reborn, to be born again of the Spirit. To know Christ as our personal Savior and to recognize you don't earn salvation, but that he earned it for you. Nicodemus in this moment cannot let go of himself. He hears the teaching. He cannot miss the Old Testament connection of water and spirit. He, he's, he can't miss it. He's been given a clear illustration to explain the mystery of the Holy Spirit's working. So in case he's like, yeah, but you've got to explain it to me. Jesus gives a, a very simple illustration that lets him know exactly how God works and that as humans, we may not be able to fully grasp every component of it. But acknowledgement means letting go of all he thought he had earned in a lifetime of works-based righteousness. And I want you to get that. Here is an old man that has lived the most righteous life of any Jew possible. He's from a group of people that came to be to fight a wicked Greek-minded king who wanted to put a pig in the temple, who wanted to destroy Jewish culture. And these are the men that were called to stand fast. And from that tradition, he is there. Sadly, he has added works to everything without even knowing it. And so acknowledging the truth of what Christ is saying, to admit to that means letting go of all he has earned in a lifetime of works-based righteousness. It's an acknowledgement. That would mean giving up his perceived entry ticket into the kingdom of God. And so he asked how this could be possible. And I want us to see the dilemma he faces. Here's a man that went to talk to Jesus because he's doing miracles and must be from God. But he teaches stuff that really throws a curveball and everything they know and believe and have worked for. And at the end of that conversation, he finds out that Those two things have to come together, that this man is God and is calling on him to recognize that what he thought he had, he doesn't have, and that he has to come to Christ like anyone else would have to come to Christ. And so he says, how is this possible? And from that, he gets a direct correction. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Now, he's already asked a kind of silly question Or a sarcastic question, can an old man be reborn in his dead mom's womb? And he got a perfect explanation. After the perfect explanation, what is his next thing? How is this possible? How does this work? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Nicodemus remains incredulous. He remains sarcastic. He remains numb and resistant to the facts clearly shown, and so he throws back to Jesus, how in the world could this be possible? Which really was him saying, how in the world is this possible without me giving up my supposedly earned status in God's kingdom? How is this possible without me giving up what I think I've earned? Tell me how that works. To which Jesus replies now with a stern rebuke, Art thou a master of Israel? Are you the teacher of Israel? And you may wonder, Kenny, why in the world split at ten? Well, the rest of this thing moves into more of a monologue all the way through, and the next things Jesus say out of his mouth, and and he goes in, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, and he moves through the next teaching that takes place. But here is a rebuke to this man. See, Nicodemus's whole identity and purpose was tied up in being the master of Israel. It was tied up in the laws and traditions that he keeps. And that he has taught everyone else to keep. And Jesus says to him, you're the one who teaches scripture to God's people and you don't even know God's word or purpose. Nicodemus' whole identity stands in judgment of his response to eternal truth. But he couldn't see it. At this moment, he refused to see it. Why? Because Nicodemus put himself where only the Savior can stand. I am my own savior is what he's saying. I've done enough. I've lived enough. I have function enough. I've accomplished enough. I've been born into the right family. I've been born in the right country. I go to the right church. I keep the right laws. I look the right way. I dress the right way. I drive the right car. I live in the right house. I have the right habits. He put himself where only Jesus Christ can stand. And I put as a question here, have you done the same thing? Have you replaced Christ with yourself? And then you might say, well, Kenny, most of us are believers. We know we need Jesus Christ, and I would throw out to you, but after knowing you need Jesus Christ, do you live like you replace Jesus Christ? Have you replaced yourself now in your Christian life? Saying, well, here I'm doing this, I do that. And looking at you instead of what Christ has done. Nicodemus was a real person that came at night to talk with the Savior of the world. He was the best that Israel could put forth, and as the best, he also sadly depicted how Israel responded as a whole. Paul writes of Israel in Romans ten two and three. He says, "For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness." Far too many supposed Christians have sought to establish their own righteousness to build their own way of salvation, of entrance into God's kingdom. But all that zeal comes to nothing when not done according to God's way, God's will, and God's knowledge. Will your zeal come to nothing? Can you see that your self-worth and supposed worthiness come to nothing? You must be born again no matter how much you strive to reject that reality. I've heard a thousand different answers to this. Well, if God's not happy with what I've done, then I don't care. God's not happy with what you've done, and you're going to care. Nothing will change that. At this point in his life, Nicodemus felt that he had earned salvation, that even in a small way, small way, and there's a whole system, there's a whole church out there that has a small way that they contribute to Access into God's kingdom. And when we see John talk about God's kingdom, he's referring to salvation. He's turning to eternal life. In some way, he thinks he's owed the kingdom for what he has done. He thought that he worked to produce his own salvation, but he was wrong. Are you wrong about the same thing this morning? Maybe your system looks different than Nicodemus's, but the end point is the same. You reject the need to be reborn. You reject the idea of regeneration and thus stand eternally outside of God's kingdom. Then maybe possibly you're redeemed, but you now act like you're, you've been the one who earned it. Maybe you live the Christian life in such a way that it becomes completely confusing to the lost world because you live like you deserve it instead of always recognizing that it was a gift of God that brought eternal life.